Good morning. How we doing? How are my cars out in the parking lot? Beep, 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 beep. I am loving that the weather just keeps getting nicer and nicer. Have you guys been enjoying that some? I've been doing a lot of gardening. We planted 20 boxwood yesterday, and I'm kind of feeling it a little bit. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here. We're continuing on our series in 1 Peter, the word arts of Peter living in the shadow of a hostile world. Uh, Peter writes, uh, when persecutions are starting to take place, persecution is imminent. He can see the writing on the wall, more persecutions coming. And so he gives us all of these gifts to help us stand strong, the gift of our identity, the gift of knowing whose we are, the gift of knowing where we look to get justice, to get all the things we need uh, for this life. So last Sunday, we talked about one of the ways we live good lives and one of the situations where we have potential to make God look good. And that is our submission to human institutions. And uh, Peter says these words, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And as we noted, the motivation for submitting ourselves to secular authorities is not because they stand on all the same issues as I do and understand things the way I do and think they should. And it's not even because these elected officials or whoever they are are necessarily great people with high moral character. Many times, sadly, they are not, and it's proved out in their lives. The motivation for showing respect to everyone is for the Lord's sake. The obedience that Christians have to the government is not so much an endorsement of the rulers of this age as much as it is an act of devotion to God and confidence that God is able to take care of all the messes that we're able to make in this world. So Paul, he said it this way to Titus, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. So as disciples of Jesus, we are constantly on the lookout for good things that we can do, ways that we can participate in things that are clearly good. And uh, consistently, we refuse to slander anyone, even those who see things very different than we do. We refuse to slander them. Our actions and our dialogue, particularly our political dialogue, should be characterized as being peaceable, considerate, and gentle. This doesn't mean we don't have opinions. And this doesn't mean we don't have things we feel very strongly about. But we carry ourselves with a kind of dignity that recognizes the dignity in other people in such a way that our actions are beyond reproach. So that way people can't dismiss us easily 
because we're being just as nasty and mean as everyone else. What Peter's saying is our lives should be characterized by so much good that when, and it's inevitable, it's going to come, that when slander comes our way, it is obvious that the shoe doesn't fit. And in fact, our lives are so full of goodness that they are able to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men, to use Peter's words. So if Christians are just as ugly, just as anxious, just as fearful, hateful as everyone else, it destroys our witness to the goodness and the power of God. But when we respect everyone, especially people we disagree with and see things differently from, we can do that in such a way that respects others and it honors God. So today, Peter is dealing with another human institution. And it's an institution that has caused great harm in human history, great evil, namely the institution of slavery. Peter is addressing Christians, young Christians, who are living under the yoke of slavery. And we might think that that doesn't really apply to us, because we don't, and we can't see things the same way that someone under this kind of institution can see them. And obviously, when we hear this word, we think of it in our historical context, and immediately we think of this country's history, uh, which involved the enslavement of African descent people by people of European descent. Or perhaps we hear the word slavery and we think of a modern-day slavery where young men and women are trafficked for purposes of sexual abuse. And that's not wrong to think these ways or to think through this lens, but we need to recognize also that slavery in the Roman Empire was different than both of these things. It wasn't one ethnic group enslaving another ethnic group. In fact, uh, the slavery of the Roman Empire was a more, much more like indentured servitude over a certain period of time. So slaves could and did routinely gain their freedom. They were able to do this. We, we sing a song about that, Pierce My Ear. So we, uh, as a slave comes to that point where they can just do whatever they want, they are free to walk away. There were some slaves who said, this is my family. These are my people. And they received a special mark of that, uh, that love and devotion in an earring uh, that they would wear as a freedman who chooses. And that's the way we're supposed to be in Christ. Um, so really, when you look at it, though, no matter how you slice this cake, in the end, whatever form it takes, slavery is a horrible and dehumanizing institution. It's horrible. And one of the frustrations modern Americans have with the New Testament is that the Scriptures never explicitly condemn the evils of institutional slavery. In fact, historically, people have twisted the words of Peter and Paul and use them as a way they expect this to be here, and it's, it's clear that they thought this exists in their environment, and it's becomes a just, it was a justification 
for great evil, but no doubt wisdom has proved true. And uh, the people who would say these things always had economic motivations. And there are times in history that whole cultures seem to be blind, at least for a time, to the suffering perpetrated by slavery in its various forms. And it takes a certain blindness of heart or a callousness of heart that really turns away from the demands of the gospel and what it means to live a life in the kingdom of God. Well, that's a tough thing, but we also need to uh, note that Peter and Paul, they never endorse slavery as an institution. They never endorse it, not even once. You read through your Bible, look through the New Testament, all the pages. And in fact, Paul says that if you can gain your freedom, you should. In fact, one of the letters that he writes, a letter to an owner of a slave named Philemon, is all about Paul trying to reason with this slave owner to gain the freedom of a runaway slave named Onesimus. And so he says these words to this slave owner, uh, Philemon, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, you know what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. You see, love implies a certain knowledge. Love gives us a certain information. Love helps us recognize what we ought to do. Love helps us see things in a different way. This is not right, the way we're treating these people. Love is something that comes and heals us of blindness, even blindness that is widespread in a culture. A blindness that includes things like slavery. So what Jesus knows and what Jesus has taught his disciples, his early disciples on earth, and has continued to teach through the Holy Spirit, is that if you get the heart right, right actions follow from a right heart. I would say legislation is important, but as you can have the best laws out there about anything, and if the heart is not right, are you even going to be able to produce people in a society that are willing to keep the law, the spirit of a law. It's impossible without the right heart. And if Jesus can get a hold of a heart and he can fill that heart with love, the love becomes an answer to all the questions that we ask, all the important questions of life, including what do you do about institutions that embody evil, social evil, at a societal level. In fact, love is so much of an answer to all of these questions that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails. It's that all-encompassing. It's that big. But now as we read Peter's letter, I would also invite us to set aside the perspective of 2,000 years of history that we've been benefit to. And we come like, why couldn't he see this? If he would have just said these words, this would have been, this could have been better. This, let's set all that aside and let's recognize 
that Peter is dealing with an audience in a specific circumstance where a large percentage of these early Gentile Christians are slaves. You know, the people who the gospel really appealed to at the very beginning and at first, it's always those who are hurting, those who are suffering, the disenfranchised, those who are at the bottom. It's not the people who think they have it all together. It's not the people who are self-sufficient, who have other resources and means. The gospel always goes, it seems, first to those who are hurting, who are those in positions of suffering and hardship. So the question Peter is asking is not, should should the institution of slavery exist? That's not Peter's question. The question that Peter is asking is how should you behave in your current reality in a way that honors God and opens the door for the gospel to spread? That's Peter's question. So just as Christians are to submit to authorities, the political powers of the land, for the Lord's sake, we are also called to show proper respect to everyone. Now Peter says the same thing with a different circumstance, the circumstances of slavery. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Just like we respect and give honor to elected authorities, regardless of whether or not we agree with them, regardless of whether or not they have such shining personalities and are a shining moral example. So even a slave, even a slave, someone who is at the very bottom of the social ladder, even from that place, you can be respectful and have a life that is so characterized by goodness that it's able to silence the ignorant talk of the foolish. Even from the bottom, whatever your circumstances are, you can still live that kind of life, Peter's saying. So he says this, Slaves, submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of injustice or the unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. When life is supremely unfair, when we are suffering some kind of injustice, uh, especially as self-made and independent Americans, it's hard for us to swallow these verses. It's hard for us to contemplate what it would be like to act like Jesus when there's a clear injustice going on. But as hard as this pill is for us to swallow, Peter has reminded the entire church, you know, you're already supposed to be thinking of yourselves as an alien, as an exile, as a foreigner from chapter 2, verse 11. And we are spiritually free because we have enslaved ourselves to God. We have come under His umbrella of mastership. 
chapter 2, verse 16, a kind of slavery that actually in the end sets us free, free in a way that this world thinks it's just, it's inconceivable. So what Peter is doing, he's trying to encourage these slaves who really, honestly, they have a very miserable lot in life. They are in a miserable position in society. No matter how you try to slice it or sugarcoat it, it's awful. They're at the bottom. These are the ones who are most taken for granted. These are the people who are most despised. These are the people that are most vulnerable, that are most likely to be abused and used and thrown away. And Peter recognizes and basically says, hey you, even you, even you at the bottom, you have a part in all of this as well. Even you at the very bottom, you have a role in this as well. And the real gift is that no matter what your situation is, no matter what the reality of your circumstances are, Peter says God sees it all. God sees it all. He knows it all. So the radical thing that the writers of the New Testament are doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that they are showing that the kingdom of God is capable of infiltrating every circumstance of human life. The good, the bad, the ugly. There's no human condition that is beyond the possibility of living life in the kingdom and the resources of God. Whether your condition is good or even if your condition and your circumstances are unjust and unfair. Peter and Paul, in a lot of his letters that we're familiar with, are rewriting Greco-Roman household codes. Household codes that deal with issues like slavery and issues like the relationship between husbands and wives, uh, issues like the relationship between parents and children, and how that is supposed to look and what that should look like. So one of the scary things about the time that we live in is the widespread disintegration of families, a failure in our culture to value strong families, uh, a failure in our culture to create strong families. And when families fall apart, societies fall apart as well. Societies crumble. Even early ancient Greeks understood this. In fact, I found this interesting quote from Aristotle as he understands and writes and helps form certain household codes. This is what Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, said, the primary and smallest parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. We ought therefore to examine the proper constitution and character of each of these three relationships. Interesting, okay. So these were the building blocks of the Greco-Roman family. And Aristotle developed these codes to advise aristocratic men on various ways that they should rule their wives, 
rule their children, and rule their slaves. That was Aristotle's worldview. And we sometimes fail to recognize how radical the gospel of Jesus Christ is that rewrites all of these household codes. The rewriting of all the primary human relationships. Now all of these relationships, whether it's slave-master, whether it's husband-wife, whether it's parents-children, they are to be characterized by mutual love and respect. Mutual submission before Christ, before God. So what that means is, no matter what your circumstances are, you know, Paul says whether uh, uh, you're a free or slave, whether you're male or female, whether you're rich or poor, all of the things that we use to keep score in the past, none of that matters in Christ. We have equal access to everything good that our Lord and our God offers. So whether or not you're at the top of society or at the very bottom, uh, like in the misery of slavery, you have... ...on this ladder, you have a part to play. Um, your actions can honor God. Your goodness, even when suffering injustice can be a powerful witness. And you know what? The Lord your God has his eyes on you, and he sees it all. So when you suffer, make sure you're not suffering because you're being just as mean and nasty as everyone else. Peter says it this way. before God. You know, we understand that if you do the crime, you need to pay. How is it to your credit if you do the crime and then you complain about the punishment? But what if you're truly innocent and you're truly living a life that is to do good for others and you suffer from that place of doing good to those around you? That calls those institutions of injustice into account. And there's something about the human heart, we long for justice. We long for it. Across cultures, we long for a way to keep things fair, to make things right. Figured that out yet? I, uh, I was oblivious to this for the longest time. And even though I have not suffered a whole lot directly myself, I was immersed in a culture filled with suffering. Culture filled with sickness and death and poverty and disease and corruption and all kinds of injustice. And it taught me some things. We're so averse to suffering. We try everything we can to run and hide from suffering, don't we? And I think rightly so. so what, what, what good is it to seek out suffering? 
We're not masochistic, whatever, you know, and seeking out horrible, painful situations because there's some kind of merit to that. And yet at the same time, we are so averse to suffering that we run and hide from suffering, and in doing so, we create lifestyles that try to hide from human suffering, and we were successful at it for years. Until and we suffer more because we're incapable of suffering and facing our suffering. We suffer more because we pretend it's not there, and we sweep it under the rug and we hide from it. Every human being is going to suffer. You're going to suffer. But blessed are those who are, in, who are able to endure suffering because of the good that you are doing. God sees that. God recognizes that. And now Peter, he moves the conversation to help us fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith the one in human history who more than anyone else suffered for the good that he was doing. Suffered for doing good. And now we need to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Because when we consider him who endured such opposition, it helps us to not grow weary and lose heart, to use the words of the writer of the Hebrew letter. Peter says it this way, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. The word art of Peter is once again, inviting us into imagery of the Old Testament. And now Peter, in this, he's using the exact words from Isaiah 53. And in the word art of Peter, he's in introducing us to the richness of the image of the suffering servant. Peter, at some point, you know, he has this friendship with Jesus. Jesus is his rabbi, his teacher. He goes through this, this craziness of life, of this journey of discovering exactly who it was that he was with. And at some point, Peter realizes and discovers in Isaiah 53 this, this suffering servant. This is Jesus. What was Peter feeling in that moment when he discovered, this is who I've been with this whole time? He's so excited about it that he has to share this imagery. He has to share this with his audience as an older man. This realization of who Jesus Christ is. The suffering servant. So Peter, in his word art, he invites us to this rich imagery. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You see, this is what Jesus does for each and every one of us. When we remember that, when we trust that, it affects our circumstances, even if we're in crummy circumstances. Verse 23, Peter says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus recognized, it's only my Father who can make this right. It's only my Father, when things have gone this far, that can give me justice. Are you a man of sorrows? So is Jesus. Are you familiar with suffering? So is Jesus. Are you a person who has been despised and rejected? So was Jesus. Have you suffered some kind of injustice? So did Jesus. When we suffer, we tend to make a big deal about it. You know, in our household, when I get sick, I have learned I get about a day and a half to two days before my wife says, okay, I've had it, you take care of yourself, mister. And I whine about it. We make a lot of our suffering. When we suffer even the slightest inconvenience, we tend to get pretty ugly about it pretty fast. See it in this whole road rage phenomena. We hear it in our political dialogue. We take things personally very quickly. And when we sense any kind of injustice on our radar screen, screen we, we speak up pretty fast and pretty harshly. 
and how quickly we forget the manner in which Christ Himself, our leader, suffered. See, in our narcissism, we constantly try to make it all about us. But Peter is reminding us, you look at Jesus. You follow the example of Jesus. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. You were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And the secret of how Jesus was able to bear up under the suffering that he had to endure, it's the same way that you and I are able to bear up under any kind of suffering in any of our circumstances, mild to very harsh. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. And this doesn't mean that you should never work for judgment or justice in your circumstances or the institutions in our, in our country, in our culture. That doesn't mean that at all. That doesn't mean if you're a woman who's suffering abuse because you're a Christian, you should just grin and bear it. That doesn't honor God. That's not what, what we're talking about with all of this. This doesn't mean that we don't speak out against evil. We can and we should, including evil that's perpetrated on an institutional and governmental and societal level. We should speak out against that. But Peter and others who write our Bible, what they recognize is that sometimes in some situations, some people are not going to find justice in this life. Does everyone get justice in this life? There are some people who are going to live and die with great evil that has been done to them, with no justice. There are people who are going to live and die having done great evil to other people, and there is no justice. People die all the time without justice because there's no justice to be had. You see, there are some matters that no human can make it right. No human can make right every injustice. That you, no matter how good the laws are, no matter what the culture's like, but we have learned to entrust ourselves to the judgment of God. God is the only one with the power and the only one with the love, the only one who's truly trustworthy. He's the only one who has plans for you that go beyond this life. And when you trust this, when you trust this, 
when you begin to not have to retaliate like Jesus didn't have to retaliate. He spoke out against evil all the time. He's constantly showing people their own hearts and the ugliness of them sometimes. But when we stop dishing out evil for evil, it breaks a cycle of retaliation. And this, is, this of course, is something that Jesus taught us. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's the world we live in. We're drowning in eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And people say, how is this even possible? takes a whole lot of love. Paul says it this way in Romans 12. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. In our own small ways, in our own small circumstances, how beautiful it is when we break apart from the cycle of retaliation. How beautiful it is that we have a kind of faith that can trust the Lord our God with all of our circumstances, no matter how messy those circumstances may be, even slavery, what Peter's addressing today. So Jason, you can come up. So we always offer an invitation every week. Uh, you can come up and uh, ask for the prayers of this church. We would love to pray for you. Um, whatever your needs are, you can share those with us to put the Lord on in baptism. But the invitation that Peter is leaving us in this text today is no matter what your place is, whether or not you are a slave or a master, whether you're a husband or a wife, a parent or a child, whatever your work situation is, we don't honor blue-collar work in this country. And uh, capitalism is an economic system that can be just as harsh as a lot of different systems. And we feel the pain of that. But whatever your circumstances are, whatever that is, whatever in your relationships, in your vocation, in the culture that we're, we're living in, no matter how crummy your circumstances are, even slavery, apparently, your greatest need is not for the change of your circumstances. Your greatest need is to realize. Can you move the next slide, Laura? 
Your greatest need is not relief from your circumstances. Your greatest need is to realize that you're a sheep who's gone astray. You're a sheep who's gone astray. Until we get this, none of the rest of that is going to make sense to us. Because there's a price that is paid for each of us. There's a price that is paid for our redemption. And that price is the suffering of Jesus, which Carl talked about, and which we celebrated when we shared communion together. And Peter's lesson for us today is that no matter how difficult or horrible the circumstances might be, there is no circumstance that can keep you from living in such a way that you honor God, in such a way that you live life in the power and resources of His kingdom. And we remember that the fundamental truth of my life or your life, it's not the circumstances that you inhabit. The fundamental truth of your life is whether or not you realize that you're a sheep who's gone astray or not. When we realize this, we are able to come back again and again and again to our good shepherd, the overseer of our souls. And when we do this, we entrust ourselves to the only being in the universe who judges justly and can give us the justice that we need. Let's stand and sing together. Why keep Jesus waiting?